Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Welcome to the Heritage Foundation's Riots in the Streets, Lessons from the 1960s for 2020 webinar. You are uh, in this session with us that will be recorded and accessible within 48 hours following the webinar. And we are asking that all attendees remain in listen-only mode. Do you want to spend your sunset years telling your children and your children's children what it was once like in the United States where men were free. Make no mistake, we are at war for the heart and soul of America. Some are fighting to preserve freedom and others seek tyranny. Irene Cobb was two generations removed from slavery. With less than a sixth grade education, she understood the value of freedom. She taught her grandchildren no matter your race, height, gender, or neighborhood, the American dream is possible through faith in God, a strong family foundation, and an unwavering work ethic. Good afternoon. I'm Angela Saylor, Vice President of the Edwin J. Fulner Institute here at the Heritage Foundation. And I credit the lessons of my grandmother, Irene, for my determination to get up each day working to save America from our worst nightmares, anarchy, socialism, and tyranny. But many have lost the vision of who we are as Americans. Our founding principles are criticized as, as the cause of our problems rather than the seeds of our greatness. The only bulwark that can stop the radical left's attempt to destroy America is an informed and energized people. The Fulner Institute is on the front lines defending the American dream by bridging America's founding vision to present day, the present day pursuit of life and happiness. This year, American cities are being torn apart by riots and protests, much as they were in the 60s. Race relations are a common issue in both eras, but other respects. 2020 could not be more different in the 60s, Martin Luther King Jr. called for racial integration and civil rights in a color, colorblind world. Today's large-scale protests and rallies for racial equality attract racially diverse crowds. These record-long demonstrations are a mix of peaceful and violent protesters. And we hope that today, that you will leave this event with a firm understanding of the role of bad actors who have played into spurring violence across this nation. And we hope you leave here today understanding policy considerations and solutions that will ensure that our cities are, are safe with practical, practical things that we can do to ensure that the next generation is prepared to lead as free men and women. It is always my great honor to introduce our president, Kay Coles James. She is the crown jewel of leadership. Mrs. James's career has been on the front lines of wonderful, great environments inside of the United States and also during times of change. As you know, she served as the OPM director during the 9-11 crisis. She wakes up each day with the vision of how Americans can find peace, hope, and stability in these trying times. Her solutions begin with conservative public policies based on the principles of free markets, based on the principles of limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values. Ladies and gentlemen, the quintessential leader of the 21st century and your friend, Kay Coles-James. Well, hello, and thank you so much, Angela, for that very warm and very kind introduction. And good afternoon to all of you, and thank you for joining us today at the Heritage Foundation. You know, we are at a pivotal time in our nation's history, being met with uncertainty from the coronavirus pandemic to the recent racial tensions in the country. 
American society is under a tremendous amount of stress. We've seen the rise of protests across the country being hijacked by anarchists and rioters and an assault on the American ideal taking place right before our eyes. When I was younger, I remember both the moving and mostly peaceful protests of the 60s, although they weren't all. I remember uh, the passage of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. But you know, even then there were those who sought to hijack a movement to advance radical agendas and saw that as a tremendous opportunity to seek to destroy our country. Today, we will review the recent events and use historical analysis to highlight the differences and similarities in the peaceful protests and riots of today and how they are being handled compared to the 1960s. And to discuss this current crisis, we are joined today by two incredible scholars. I should let you know that I asked to come and introduce both of them because they both are personal heroes of mine. We are delighted to welcome to the Heritage Foundation two really great Americans. One doesn't really need to be welcomed, he actually works here. So from the Heritage Foundation, we have our very own senior fellow, Mike Gonzalez, who is also the distinguished E Pluribus Unum Fellow and the author of The Plot to Change America. Our guest today is my very dear friend, Dr. Victor Davis Hansen. I followed him long before I became president of the Heritage Foundation, and he's always been a personal hero of mine. Victor is the Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and chairs the Military History Working Group there. He's an American scholar of ancient and modern warfare and has been a commentator and contempt on contemporary politics for various media outlets. Victor was also awarded the National Humanities Medal in 2007 by President George W. Bush and was a recipient of the Bradley Prize in 2008. His accomplishments go on and on, but I'm certain we can all agree that Dr. Hansen is well-equipped and armed to discuss the current state of the nation. I am pleased to once again welcome who we lovingly call VDH and look forward to the important dialogue. Uh, Victor, over to you and Mike, glad you're able to join this conversation today. I'm very glad to be with you, even from my farm in Selma, where I'm looking out the window and can't see anything due to these fires. That's a different discussion. Superficially, the 1960s, as I lived through them as a young teen, were similar in the uh, social protests that we see today. It was primarily, like today, a phenomenon of young people out in the street. It was uh, it began as a one-issue uh, protest, in that case, Vietnam, not the death of George Floyd and racial relations vis-a-vis uh, -vis the police in the United States. But like today, it blossomed out in cultural revolutionary style. So in the 60s, everything was questioned from wearing glasses like this, uh, wire rim glasses or Levi's or hippies or your hair or movies or profanity. And by the same token, we can see that this movement now incorporates everything from advocacy for illegal immigration to transgenderism to movies and representation. So their cultural history, their cultural revolutionary movements, sort of like the Jacobin moment in the French Revolution or Mao's cultural revolution or what happened in Russia in 1917 and beyond. And Ostensibly, they're angry also at the status quo, the establishment. And that's, I don't know if that's intrinsic about youthful uh, cultural evolutions, but a little bit differently here is that there were force multipliers, COVID, the induced uh, recession, the first national quarantine. These put people, you know, in their rooms or studios or wherever they were, basement for 90 days or so. And so there was an exuberance that was unleashed in a more spontaneous, quick fashion, whereas the 60s grew slowly in intensity. But there's a lot of differences. And the first thing that I notice, and I think you will too, is that in the past, these being movements of the left, 
the Democratic establishment in the cities, whether we like them or not, Sam Yorty in New York, uh, in Los Angeles as mayor, or uh, Frank Russo, Rizzo in Philadelphia, or Mayor Daley in Chicago, whatever they were, they were relics of the old Democratic Party, and they wanted law and order so that it didn't impair their both their ability to govern and the image of the Democratic Party. We've never seen anything quite like these blue state, in contrast, mayors, uh, attorney generals, governors, and whether it's Ted Wheeler in Oregon or Lori Lightfoot in Chicago, that at least, or Mr. Garcetti in Los Angeles, seem to sympathize or contextualize or appease the violence. I know this is an election year and maybe people see it useful for a political agenda, but that's new that the political hierarchy, the people in power, seem to be on the side of the cultural revolutionaries, even though sometimes they're less than explicit in their support. Another big difference is, if you remember back in the 60s, uh, the protesters railed about the corporate world, IT&T, uh, the Rockefeller banks, the Rothschilds, uh, all of these trusts. It was almost like we were back in the 1890s. Today, if we were to look at the Fortune 400 or 500 and look at the so-called billionaire wealth, uh, both in corporations and individuals, I think we would pretty much surmise that most of them are left-wing and they've been very active in support. The Tom Steyers of the world, the Zuckerberg fortune, even Bill Gates, what he's weighed in on. Uh, Mayor Bloomberg promising to put a hundred billion dollars into uh, the campaign of Joe Biden and the foundations and the corporate world this time, and perhaps Wall Street and, and Silicon Valley as well, seem to be sympathetic and therefore they're not targets of this cultural evolution to the same degree. Whether this is just simple opportunism or real politique, they don't want to be attacked or they'll hurt their business plans or models, I don't know. But in the past, this cultural revolution was class orientated. It was directed in the 60s against people who had something versus those who said they didn't. And this time it seems to be directed at those who have something, but aided and abetted by those who have something a lot. It's really a war against the middle and upper, upper middle classes by the very wealthy and the very poor. There's another uh, difference too. There's a lot more cultural levers in our society that are enhancing this protest. In the past, if athletes wanted to raise a fist or they questioned the relevance of sports that was not dealing with politics, they were isolated. We've never seen something where most of the team members of the NFL or the NBA are actively engaged in protest, and even the owners themselves, even when their own internal polling and data show that that's not a wise business decision. In other words, professional sports like Hollywood and entertainment are now part of this cultural revolution and enhancing it. Another big difference is in the past, conservative Democrats sort of allied with conservative Republicans, and they tried to say whatever protests are legitimate, we have to have law and order first. But we've never seen conservatives, we have this never Trump so-called movement. We have a lot of conservatives who are actually attacking the president's response to the violence, suggesting that the use of uh, military marshal, uh, military troops or federal marshals is insurrectionary in its own right. And that often advancing the argument that Donald Trump is not the remedy, but the cause of this dissension, that, that break, that Manichaean divide in the conservative movement was not present in the 1960s, at least to the same degree. I think more importantly though, the medium is more the message today. In the past, it was true that the three networks uh, and the New York Times as is today and Washington Post were pretty much left wing, but there was an old generation of I guess we call them Cold War warriors uh, that had opposed the old left. They, they had uh, pretty much come down on the idea that America didn't have to be perfect to be good. And the media itself, while it was left leaning, it wasn't activist in the same sense. There weren't people as Jim Rutenberg or Christian Anampur or Jorge Ramos have said, this is no time to be disinterested. You have to be partisan. But more importantly is the mechanism by which the news has been delivered. We live now in the, the era of the internet search and social media and the power 
not just the $4 trillion in market capitalization of Google or Facebook or Apple or Amazon or these huge conglomerates that are not subject to antitrust legislation. They're not only decidedly left-wing and decidedly sympathetic with those out in the streets, but they have monopolies on how we see that information and we have access to it. So if there's a particular type of violence on the street, a, police being, a policeman being attacked or an innocent bystander, they can calibrate a Google search or they can censor a YouTube uh, display or they can go into social media and have an arbitrary and asymmetrical method of censorship that favors the protesters at the expense of those who feel that it's getting very dangerous. And so to sum up, it's a youthful protest. It's a cultural revolution that we're witnessing. Uh, it's not yet, believe it or not, in the intensity and the breadth and the longevity of the 1960s. But what's it, what makes it more dangerous, I think, is that it has far more cultural influence. Big money, Wall Street, corporations, Silicon Valley, professional sports, the media, Hollywood, celebrities, foundations than anybody ever imagined in the 1960s. And the 1960s people said, they all are the enemy and we're out on the streets alone. And now what we're hearing and what we're seeing and what we're realizing is the people out on the streets are simply the military wing of a huge progressive and very affluent and powerful progressive movement. And uh, we haven't yet as conservatives and traditionalists discovered a way to counteract that because we keep relying on the idea that most Americans are appalled at the violence and appalled at many of the agendas and we think majority rules in this country but we don't quite realize that 20 percent 30 percent of the country can get an agenda fulfilled if they have the cultural heft and influence of the sort that we see now. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Dr. Hansen. Um, I'm going to now invite my colleague, Mike Gonzalez, to, to the screen and turn it over to you, Mike, um, to, to make your remarks. And then Dr. Hansen and I will join you back for a discussion. Um, well, uh, thank you, Angela. And thank you, Mrs. James, uh, for that, uh, that nice introduction. I, I see uh, strong links. Uh, between the riots of the 1960s and the riots we're seeing this year, I would like to remark on three of these links, uh, which actually lead into one another. The first is that the riots uh, back then frightened the establishment into agreeing to really bad policies, policies that we have lived to regret. And I see the same thing happening today, potentially. Uh, the second is that it, the ideologues back then used the violence that was taking place to sow the seeds of revolution they wanted to change America from within, and I, I believe that continues today, uh, very much so. And the third is that radicals back then are still around uh, and are mentoring, funding, or actually training some of the key organizers of today's uh, protests and riots. So let's start with the policies. As I described in my book, uh, one of the reasons we have the divisions we have today is that the establishment of the 60s and early 70s, which was then white and Eastern uh, largely, lost its nerve and capitulated. Uh, militants uh, intimidated politicians, administrators, and mid-level bureaucrats into laying down the foundations of the identity politics that so rankles our lives today. One of the things we have to understand about what happened back then is that the, the riots were, were could be devastating and were sustained. Uh, some 700 uh, riots took place between 1965 and 1971 between uh, 65 and 68 alone, there were more than 300 riots that left 250 people dead uh, and hundreds of millions in property damage, most of it in African-American communities. Uh, so the establishment panicked, the political leaders, the heads of the foundations, uh, the university presidents, uh, editors of big city papers, the network executives, which were then uh, very powerful, more than today, feared that the country uh, could be lost uh, among the policies they allowed was the creation of, uh, of racial uh, and, and, and identity uh, ethnic categories by the federal bureaucracy, and then the related inception of, of racial preferences for university admissions, employment, and government contracting. Uh, by doing these things, they formalized identity groups, provided to individuals incentives to adhere to these groups, and nurtured the culture of victimhood that is so prevalent today. 
uh, I, but you know, some of these were intended consequences, some of them not intended. But either way, the whole scheme betrayed the colorblind promise of the civil rights movement that people, some of the speakers referred to before, uh, within a handful of years, the promises of getting rid of race in decision-making was turned on its head. A very typical figure of the establishment that I write about in my book is McGeorge Bundy, who is in many ways the personification of the Boston Brahmins that dominated the elite set back then. Bundy had been John F. Kennedy's national security advisor, and then he took over as the head of the Ford Foundation in 1966, just as the riots were getting underway and the urgency was deeply felt. Bundy and his team backed uh, racial preferences and group creation because they believed uh, they, they, they were temporary measures. Uh, we know now that's not the case. Uh, Bundy actually believed in a staggering uh, stratagem that one historian has called uh, developmental separatism. The theory was that uh, only after a period of ethnic separation, of balkanization, could assimilation take place at some time in the future. Now, according to that historian, Karen Ferguson, Bundy and, and his executives uh, put on a brave face, but, but, quote, had little idea about how to stop the rebellions or their negative impacts on the American body politics. Unquote. Uh, Ferguson goes on to say that fear of the destabilizing, of the destabilizing impact and revolutionary possibility of a sustained black revolt drove virtually all American uh, social policy, public and private, during that, that crisis. Uh, now, that revolutionary possibility was also recognized by the ideologues and activists, but they didn't want to stop it. Uh, they wanted revolution. They wanted the opposite of what Bundy wanted. They insisted they were acting on behalf of the grassroots, but we know that uh, from reading the, the literature back then that actually individuals back then thought they could solve their problems individually. Um, this brings me to the second link. Uh, there were many people uh, on the left that saw the disturbances, the disturbances and the mayhem as something uh, that they could use for their own ends. One of the main characters was uh, Herbert uh, Marcuse, who was a German-American hard-left academic uh, who was very influential in the student movement, just like Bundy uh, was em emblematic of the establishment that uh, panicked. Marcuse was representative of the ideologues who made use of the, of the riots. So he saw them actually as a ray of hope. He had been despairing that the American worker was never going to rebel and overthrow the system, uh, but the riots demonstrated to him that there was a new revolutionary base, new identity groups who, if correctly organized and led by a revolutionary vanguard, uh, they could uh, move, the move the country toward central planning. Uh, and he wrote in 1966, underneath the conservative popular base is the substratum of the outcasts and outsiders, the exploited and persecuted of other races and other colors. Uh, so the members of the, the newly created identity groups, however, had to be instilled uh, with grievances in order to spark in them the desire to change the country. Uh, many others followed Marcuse's logic and uh, made uh, these new identity groups as vehicles of, revol of revolution. And the people who, who led this revolt is still at it. And this is the third link I see, Angela. Uh, the one between the Black, the Black Panthers and the Weathermen of yesteryear with the riots of today. Just uh, let's take a look at the three founders of the Black Lives Matter organizations, Patrice Coulors, Alicia Garza, and Opal Tometi. All three of them claim Angela Davis, uh, the former Black Panther and member of the Communist Party USA, and a personal student of Marcuse, I may add, uh, as one of their mentors. Especially, Garza especially is waxes poetic about the influence that Angela Davis has, has had on her. Uh, the, the same thing with Joanne, uh, Joanne Chesimard, who tops the, the, the FBI's most wanted list after escaping from prison uh, for, for uh, killing a, a cop in, in cold blood in 73. She's been given asylum in communist Cuba since 1979. All three of the BLM founders claim Chesimard, who now goes by the name of Asata Shakur as their lodestar. Uh, but the, the biggest impact, uh, I believe, uh, on this generation comes through the training. Couleurs, for example, trained for a decade as a radical organizer in the Labor Community Strategy Center uh, that was founded and is still run by Eric Mann. Eric Mann is a former member of the Weather Underground. That's the 1960s uh, group that the FBI identified as a domestic terrorist uh, organization. Uh, the ties between the BLM Global Network 
and the weathermen, in fact, run very deep. Uh, Weather on the ground member Susan Rosenberg uh, serves as vice chair of the uh, board of directors of Thousand Currents. That's the radical uh, grant-making institution that until July sponsored the BLM Global Network, and they only changed because they attracted so much attention. So these are clear links to the actors of today. As far as the policies, um, I can see similarities with our leaders trying to outdo each other to show uh, they, they have good intentions, and such as defunding the police or reparations. Reparations would only uh, lead us away from true fixing really the problems. It's also the unseemly rush by corporations to outwoke each other and support the radical organizations. Or we see the, uh, the very worrisome to me as a former journalist, uh, rushed by, uh, by journalists, by media companies to, 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 to still voices of dissent. Uh, if we don't have criticism, we may, we may walk into uh, bad policies again. So these are the similarities I see, and I'm just gonna leave it there now, and uh, maybe let's uh, take some questions. Thank you. Thank you, Mike, so much, uh, so much information. I wanna have uh, both Mike and Dr. Hansen come back to the screen so we can dig in and, and, and really talk about um, the dynamics that you all have discussed. I am sure that, that many of, of the participants on this webinar are feeling a little overwhelmed. Um, I mean, it's like the, the battles on all sides. You know, you talk about the media, you talk about corporations, we've got the onset of COVID involved in this with the economy, uh, and we're looking at the past, trying to figure out how to navigate ourselves into tomorrow. So let's start with, um, you know, we all have neighbors. We all, many of us have children or grandchildren, and we're trying to have conversations about what's happening here. Uh, Dr. Hansen, you know, just looking back to the 60s in terms of the dynamic of, of the media, three big networks versus today, where you've got social media intersecting with cable television, um, and the younger generation is really consuming through social media. Though we see through studies um, and, and, and the research that they do a lot of um, comparing of information in order to come up with their conclusions. But as we're looking at this in the dynamic of the media, uh, tell us what concerns you most about where the state of things are in terms of the communication. And as parents, as grandparents, what we need to be doing um, and engaging with young people in our lives as, as they look to become leaders in the country uh, in the next 20 years. Uh, what do we do with this? Well, I think we on the conservative side kind of delude ourselves because we say, well, in the 60s, we didn't have access to Fox News or we didn't have access to talk radio or we didn't have access to conservative blogs. That's true. But on the other hand, the left, as we knew it then, didn't have the access and the presence that it does now. In other words, there was nothing like Facebook. There was nothing like Google. There was nothing, and we and there was the intensity was different. You didn't see Walter Cronkite uh, assuming the role of somebody like Rachel Maddow. It just didn't happen. So the left has become much more intense, and in their partisanship. It's really a progressive neo-socialist party. It's not the old Democratic Party. And while there are outlets of uh, dissonant voices in the media. It's grown at a geometric rate, the left has, and we've grown at an arithmetic rate. So they are far more ubiquitous. They have instant communications. And most importantly, and I think we kind of underestimate this, people in my generation, although we're, we're communicating with this technology today, we're not as adept in TikTok and social medias and Instagram. It's foreign to us. It's hieroglyphics. But the youth have absorbed all of that and they've mastered it. And it's a very much more effective way of communication in terms of time and intensity than our old letters or reading newspapers or magazine. And it's predominantly left wing. And so they've taken both the media and the message and the youth have mastered it. And so it's a force multiplier that we haven't really come to terms with. So when you see these Antifa people 
and the, and BLM people, they have these little, it's almost selfies, these smartphones. Well, they're taking pictures and that's gonna show up on social media almost instantaneously and it's gonna be give a selective view. And then we're gonna have these instant mini cam reporters who are gonna play it. And it's all gonna be adjudicated by the logarithms of Google searches. So if I'm here and, and out on my farm and I said, what happened in Portland? I'm gonna type in, you know, riot and, and Antifa and Portland. I'm not going to get the real story for the until I go through 50 different listed items, and the first 50 are going to be pretty progressive. That's that's scary. Mm -hmm. That's what mm -hmm. I'm worried about. Okay, Mike, over to you on on this question. I mean, you you you've been a journalist uh, in in your past life for for many years, uh, looking at news and events across the world, and I know this absolutely scares you, um, but what can we what can we tell parents in terms of maybe having our our children uh, as they are becoming educated about the information and understanding the dynamics of what's going on in terms of the protests and the riots of of being able to in some ways become little mini journalists of their own in their own right to help push information out that uh, gives people the truth helps us to be able to combat this. Yeah, I, I'm going to differ a little bit. I, I do believe that the internet has liberated us. I, I don't want to go back to the era of Cronkite and Harry Reasoner and, and, and John Chancellor and, and, and Cronkite actually being able to say, and that's the way it was today, April 4th, 1974. I think today we're, we're much more liberated. And I, I, I actually see that in, in how the left complains bitterly in one's Facebook uh, to, to, to stamp down conservative um, uh, conservative um, information uh, so we have to we, we do have to jawbone uh, uh, Facebook and Twitter make sure that they stay fair uh, they are private companies I give the, I grant them the right to do what they want but we have to complain bitterly when they don't play uh, when they don't play fairly uh, we do we're able I believe to get our message out for example if you Google black Lives matter agenda uh, Two items that I was involved with, one an op-ed and another one a video, are in the top four of the hits you get on Google. So I am happy with that environment. I'm happy with the ability to have that. Um, and I do, you know, MSNBC and Rachel Maddow is a price that we have to pay for the liberation that we have. On to what to say to our children, you know, you, you can't abdicate the job of parents. You have to be constantly talking to your children about what they learn in school. If they if they read Howard Zinn. You have to decode that. Uh, so I believe that you have to be an activist parent and the same thing with what they do on social media. It is hard work, I admit it. Yeah, it truly, it truly is. It seems like you, you, you wake up and you're, you're battling against this and you've got these conversations you're having. Um, and, you know, kids are looking at, well, the First Amendment says that we, we've got the right to be able to, to, to share our views. Um, but as both of you have really broken down, um, as we look at the emotion that's involved and we look at the politics that's being played, um, there's there 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 are severe consequences to being sucked in. Mike, you worked on um, the Black Lives Matter video that that was produced by Heritage, and uh, you know I know it. I think it's gotten over nine hundred thousand views at this point. You know, tell me why you think. And, and, and what, what's connecting and resonating in that messaging that's grabbing people to pay attention? I think it's because we were the first uh, to, to actually take the leadership position in saying, we all agree with the sentiment that Black Lives Matter. Nobody in his right mind would not say that Black Lives, of course, matter. But the organizations are really, truly Marxist outfits created by, by three women who are, who are Marxist. And they say they are. And what they want to do is change society. Uh, and they don't hide this again. So we we produced the video. It's closing in on a million views. Uh, we uh, we uh, one of my colleagues, Andy Olivastro, and I wrote an op-ed for the New York Post, which we then uh, uh, put out in Heritage. On Heritage alone, it's already had uh, close to a half a million views. And I'm very happy to report that people have stayed over eight minutes in each reading. It, it, it's it's probably received that same amount uh, over at the New York Post. So so I think that. 
our political leaders are afraid to take on these issues because they don't want to be seen as taking on Black Lives Matter. There's a paper written today that says 95% of the riots that we have had since, since May have been organized at, at the beginning by Black Lives Matter, the organizations. We need to be able to speak about this, draw a fine line between the sentiment and the organizations and point the bright light to the organized, to the people who created these movements and what they want to achieve in American society. They want to change everything. Yeah. May I tell you, Doc, Dr. Hansen, one of the things that we haven't really talked about um, today between the remarks that the two of you have given is, you know, there is a, when you look back to the 60s, you, we see uh, an, an, an incorporation in terms of peaceful protests with faith-based leaders. And as we look at the streets today and the organizing as, as you and Mike have laid out in terms of this political corporate play component of, of bad intent, there seems to be absent from the organizing faith-based leaders. And I just, I, I, I'd love to hear your perspective about that in terms of looking back at the 60s, Martin Luther King, um, the church were, churches were organizing and working in partnership many times with, with, with law enforcement. Um, and then today, as you look at what's happening on the streets, it, it seems like there's no designated leader. This organizing is happening through social media. It's like hard to kind of put your finger on the movement of it, but it's all across the country. I think what you're getting at is that that was what we're seeing at the very beginning was sort of a late stage 1960s and 70s. Those protests went on for years, as you say, with grassroots church involvement, so social groups, peace groups that were largely peaceful. And then people like the SDS, the Weathermen, the Black Panthers began to hijack them and they started going into bank robberies and attacks. And I think in 1971, we had almost one terrorist incident every other day. But that was a late stage. What's unique about this phenomenon, that was an early stage. From the very beginning, as Mike pointed out about BLM and Antifa, they were the uh, the organizers of it. And then very quickly, they hijacked that and there's not very many people who today in America say, I want to protest the killing of, you know, George Floyd. I want to go out and peacefully protest because they know what's going to happen. It, the protest date, the assembly points, the method of action, even the timing will be taken over by radical groups. One of the, very quickly, one of the differences that may, that might explain that is that when we were in the university, and I'm speaking as a student in the 1970s, in California University, Stanford, University of California at Santa Cruz. And as a professor in the Cal later, 30 years later, I can tell you that there were still classical liberal Democrat professors. And by that, I mean, if SDS people came in in 1970, as they did when I was in college and tried to hijack a class and throw and destroy uh, an art historian's example, uh, examples of paintings because they were bourgeois or they were capitalists. There were other professors that were outraged. And when they came into our class, we barred that there were people of resistance in the university. And there were whole disciplines that were immune, physics, math, science. What's happened now is, and I can tell you as somebody who taught as a professor during this period, the entire uh, professorate is woke. And so Regardless of your discipline, you can have a math professor, a physics, and when you look at what they're trying to do within their own discipline, you get these memos in the university that all people within our department shall recalibrate their research according to, it's almost a Maoist or Stalinist directive, that it will have certain social justice issues, even in scientific research, or what we saw with the University of Chicago recently saying they will not admit anybody uh, that is not studying black uh, black studies issues. So the university now is much more solidified. It's much more woke. It's much less intolerant. And today's uh, yesterday's classical liberal is now completely a dissident, and he's scared stiff that he'll be hounded out. And we saw that at Evergreen State. We saw that with Mr. Cat, Professor Katz at Princeton. One final note. 
we mentioned all these things that are different. One that we haven't talked about is the military, especially the retired military. That old image in the 60s was that they had glass, you know, sunglasses and epaulets and they were dangerous to freedom. We've never in my lifetime or even my reading of history had an entire cadre of distinguished four-star admirals and generals who've said things like, and I'm quoting them without, I can identify them by name if you wish, but calling the commander-in-chief Mussolini or saying that he should be removed from office, as one did in New York Times, up at sooner than later, or another person saying he's, he's a danger to the republic, or another person comparing his uh, strategies to the Nazis who opposed us on D-Day, and a leading scholar in foreign um, policy within 10 days of the inauguration saying that there were four ways to get rid of this president. One was waiting to the election, not possible. One, removing him by the 25th Amendment, not possible. One, impeaching him, not really possible. But the fourth, a military coup, something to be discussed. And, we, and now we have almost, a, some people have called it coup porn. I think Byron York coined that term. And we saw that with the Bob Woodward recent memoir where people, active military officers and retired military officers and people working in the administration talked about interventions and that the intervention was just simply a disagreement over policy that had been exaggerated and transmogrified into some type of constitutional abuse that would require a, mili a military intervention. This isn't my view or paranoia or seven days in May type of conspiracy theory, because Joe Biden himself picked up on it when the four former Joint Chiefs mentioned that about the possible use of federal troops. He said, you know, I feel really good now because if this election is contested, these guys are the type that will come in and remove him from office. Mm -hmm. And when there, we heard about this war gaming recently that had a lot of never Trumpers and liberals in, involved in actually imagining how you would remove a president from office through extra constitutional means. I don't think that was anywhere. We had we saw nothing like that in the 60s. Hmm. Well, you, you, you raised the point of, of um, the federal government and I mean, tomorrow's Constitution Day. Uh, and so as we are looking at this and, and trying to get from the protest to policy, uh, in terms of, of what works, what keeps the community safe. Mike, jump in and, and talk about um, some of the things that, that Heritage is proposing uh, take place in terms of, of, of where, uh, in terms of our balance of power, uh, that it is appropriate to have the federal government and the states working hand in hand uh, to protect the citizens of this country. Well, as uh... As Jefferson famously wrote, governments are instituted among men in order to protect our freedoms, uh, and, and a government that does, does not do that has abdicated its responsibility and is no longer legitimate. However, we we do we we are very leery of uh, of federalizing uh, the the National Guard uh, when a governor or a mayor is is uh, opposed to us coming in, and and for good reason. You know, we don't want to. Uh, we don't want to use the National Guard for something that we believe is going to be a very controversial and be they're not meant to do. They're not they're not policemen. Uh, I think what needs to happen is that uh, governors and mayors need to understand that they have to. These are they, 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 people have a right to walk in their city. People have a right to 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 have safe lives. This is a, a, a by the way, I loved what Victor just said about the differences. We have seen that these are very important differences, but we also another difference is we have never seen governors and mayors and police stand by and allow the destruction that is taking place. It, it, this is almost people are talking about, and I hate to even bring up the, the comparison, right, about Spain in 1936 when when the the, the government was elected and uh, the leftist government was elected. And the people, the, the, the left just started attacking churches and attacking monuments, and the, 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 the police and, and the army just stood by and allowed this to happen. This is not supposed to happen here in America. Uh, so, again, this is, I believe, that we, this is on the mayors and the governors. They have to work with the federal government. They really, they have a responsibility to, to, to protect the rights of people to, to, uh, to, uh, of their natural rights, the right to property, their, their right to life, 
and and right now they're abdicating that responsibility. It's it's very worrisome. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Dr. Hanson, it looked like you wanted to jump in on on that point of um, you know in terms of trying to get to resolution and where the partnership has to take place between the federal government and at the state level in order to bring the, uh, the, the peace and safety and security back to cities. Remember, we've had a flipping of views of states' rights. When we were growing up in the 60s, there was the, ins- the idea that we were geographically and ideologically still captives of the Civil War. So the left said the federal government's ability to outlaw school prayer or the the federal, the Kennedy administration's uh, move to nationalize the National Guard of Alabama so that George Wallace in 1963 could not obstruct civil rights of U.S. citizens. We all agreed on that. But what's happened now is that the left has taken the old Confederate idea of states' rights and carried it to its own extreme. And so here in California, we have all these, I think nationwide, we have 550 jurisdictions yet that say that federal immigration law is no longer uh, going to be enforced within, in certain cases within our jurisdictions. And it's not a symmetrical idea. If Provo, Utah wants to say, you know, I agree with that. So we have a sanctuary city law here in Provo that says, if you want to buy a handgun, you don't have to follow federal law. Just pick it up and walk out with it. Or if Boise, Idaho wants to say, there is no endangered species list in Boise, Idaho. That federal law does not... The left just wants it asymmetrically one way, and they've countervened federal law in a way that's it's, it's very dangerous. So, And that's what's really the basis, the idea of these cities and these mayors who are saying that within our jurisdictions, we're not going to, to, to deal with, with the law. We're not going to enforce it. If somebody gets arrested, we're not going to indict them. We're going to let them off. And the remedy for that, and I share Mike's hesitation, is not sending in federal troops in the way that George H.W. Bush was invited, you know, encouraged by Colin Powell during the Rodney King and 5,000 Marines into L.A. But because if they would arrive there, who knows what the reaction would be of the host. They might even oppose them. But it's to do, I think, what the administration's doing. They're doing what Lincoln is doing. They're saying, you don't own the federal courthouse in Portland. You don't own the post office. You don't own those federal monuments. Gavin Newsom, you don't own Yosemite. That's federal property, just like Lincoln said of Fort Sumner and the other. And then Barr at the same time, and a very, I think he's been very canny about this. He's got a, a suspicion that these so-called revolutionaries are not Che Guevara's who want to go up in the highlands and suffer and fight like Maki from the Maki. They're mostly upper middle class kids in the Antifa, mostly white, and they're terrified of being arrested. You see it when they're very vocal, they get in the face of police, they spit, and then they get arrested and they squeal. Or they say, where's the police? So what they're doing is they've indicted over 1,500 of them on very serious felony charges. And I think that is gonna be a very effective technique because it overrides the ability of local district, district attorneys to offer them exemptions. And it will be the type of serious uh, accusation and indictment that will be very worrisome to their parents and themselves when they consider their curses a norm and their eventual beautiful careers. So I think we've really got to expose this upper middle class uh, romance with uh, dishing it out to authorities, but not being able to take the consequences because there has been no consequences. And I think that's what Barr is trying to remind America that there are consequences to the violence that they inflict on innocent bystanders. Well, speaking of consequences, Mike, back to your point that you were driving um, in terms of looking back to the 60s and in terms of the economic harm caused um, and the devastation caused to communities and, and, and the economy as a whole. So now we are here with COVID. Um, we, we have a strained economy just because of the nature of, of, of the environment that we're operating in. And as you all have eloquently outlined for us, you know, things have gotten worse in terms of protests from the 60s to now, it's more dangerous. So as we look 20 years ahead um, and, and we look at trying to rebound our economy now out of, out of a COVID-19 environment, 
what what does this mean for in 20 years and in terms of escalation of of rioting and protest and 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 preservation of our economy and and the strength and the safety of our cities i mean give us some hope for for in the next 20 years that we're not on a trajectory for it to continue to get worse no i, I look this these things are not long lasting no society can can live like this permanently well i guess some societies do i don't think ours will we were talking with Victor earlier about the degree of devastation uh, that that could be we could end up having as a result of what we're seeing today. And I'd like to hear what he has to say about that. But uh, look, I am hopeful. I am hopeful uh, for for several reasons. Uh, one of the things that the left uh, does is that it is it, it tries to do. It's got a, it's a supremely vain attempt at changing human nature. It tries to, if, in human nature is unchanging. If you read the Odyssey, if you read the Bible, if you read the Iliad, you encounter figures who were depicted thousands of years ago, like Agamemnon and Sarah and, and, and Abraham and, and, and uh, Ulysses. And the thing that's most striking about them is that they're just like us. They're exactly like us. Human nature is unchanging. And the left promises that the new man will arrive, but the new man never arrives. There is no new man. Uh, and, and so they have to rely on coercion. I do believe that Americans are more uh, allergic to coercion than any other people in the world. We're more attached to liberty than any other peoples in the world, which is the reason why I remain optimistic, even though it looks so bad. I agree. I'm not being I'm not being Pollyannish, Victor. I agree that we have ceded control of the commanding heights of the culture. Uh, I, I completely agree with you on the academy. It's even worse. It's, it's even just as bad in K through 12. Uh, you know, um, uh, also entertainment and the media. But but I do think that in the end we will win. We have a better argument. And, and now Victor will tell me why I'm wrong and being too optimistic. <laughs> um, well, I mean, stable societies. Uh, some whether things like we're going through very well. Some get weakened. Uh, in the antiquity, a stable society like, like Corsaira was torn apart by what they called stasis. 1848, we saw what happened in Europe. What made Britain avoid the uh, 1789 French revolutionary activity, it's, it's debatable. And but what I would say is that no society is immune, that each generation is a chain and it's a link in a big chain. And as Reagan reminded us, it can be wiped out within a generation. And what we haven't done is we haven't strengthened those links from generation to generation. And that's partly the culpability of the educational system. So when I teach or I, uh, I go to a, a university to speak, if I ask the audience, what is Iwo Jima? What is Gettysburg? what is a B-17, and I get off the military sphere and say something like, what's the First Amendment? What's the Third Amendment? What's the Fifth Amendment? What's the Eighth Amendment? What's uh, balance? They don't know this. None of this, these kids are known. They're very confident. They're very confident that they're articulate and rhetorical. And for all the $1.6 trillion in student loans that they encumber, they're encumbered by and they're worried about, they're actually, with all due respect to them, quite ignorant. Ignorance and arrogance is a fatal combination. So they're zealous, but they have no reason to be zealous about anything because they don't have the education or the background or the general knowledge that people commiserate with their age 30 years ago, 40 years ago had. And so when they're doing the things they're doing and saying the things they're doing, they have no idea of the consequences and how fragile this country is. This is the only, since the Roman Empire, this is the only large multiracial experiment in history that's worked under a constitutional uh, framework. And it's not easy. The natural inclination of most people is tribalism, to identify by their superficial appearance. This country, unlike the Soviet Union that got rid of that, or Yugoslavia that got rid of that, or the Romans said, we're going to get rid of that, but we're not going to do it through an ideological straitjacket like <laughs> communism or a dictator or a Cadillo. We're going to make people get along because they have a common shared ideal of citizenship. We're going to give up our tribal identities, slow at first, you know, checks and balances, detours, cul-de-sacs, but eventually we're going to be Americans first and common ideals. And what you look like 
is incidental. It's not essential to your character. But that's an artificial idea. That's not a natural tendency for most people. As Mike says, human nature hasn't changed. And you let people do what they want, and they revert to a Lord of the Flies tribalism. And I think people are testing those limits right now. And so when the English department, as I said, at Chicago says, we're going to radically change everything. We don't want Shakespeare scholars. We don't want Milton scholars. We don't want American novel scholars. Only black studies people. Or we go to a, a dorm and we say, you can now determine your roommate in advance by his skin color. That's That chips away and it, it does its part to erode this. And finally, people are going to say, you know what? If that person's going tribal and that group is going tribal to survive, I'm going to go tribal. And I can already see it out in the hinterlands of the San Joaquin Valley. If I go into Walmart at six in the morning and there's mostly a Latino group by 10 o'clock, but there's the vestigial white group still there at six and seven in the morning, people that I don't even know who have no idea of me will now say hello. And the coded communication is, I'm going to say hello to you because you superficially look like I do. And for the first time in my life, I'm going to identify by my tribe. That's a very dangerous idea. And we haven't seen it yet with the majority population. We do not want to see it. But if everybody starts to go tribal, and I think Francis Fukuyama in his recent book warned against it. It's Once you go tribal, it's kind of like going nuclear. Everybody does it for their sense, wrongly or rightly, of survival. And that'll be the dissolution of this country. Arthur Schlesinger, you know, wrote about it and warned about it 30 years, and old liberals, so did others. And uh, that's what I'm worried about, that we got to stop this tribalism now and go back to an assimilationist, integrationist, intermarriage, uh, melting pot paradigm, because the other one leads to oblivion. Well, gentlemen, I, I this has been an incredible discussion. Um, your your scholarship, your wisdom that you've shared, I think, has really shed light on um, so much for for everyone who's participating. Our time is almost up. I want to give each of you a chance to do a one minute uh, recap uh, as, as we close out. And you know, tomorrow, as I said earlier, it's Constitution Day. And 50 years ago, um, the, the, the voting age was lowered to 18. And so uh, in November, we're gonna have a lot of new voters, young voters going um, out to, to participate in, in, in this republic we have, um, to, to engage and to, to be a part of it. So in your closing, give them some hope uh, for the future because they are our next generation and we are depending on them to uh, carry out a legacy of freedom for generations to come. So, Mike, I'll start with you, and then Dr. Hansen, I'll close out with you. Well, thank you. I'll just take uh, take off from where uh, Victor just uh, left off. This I this idea of dividing society into uh, group identities is 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 pernicious, especially in a country such as ours. We need the reason I wrote my book, The Plot to Change America, was to get Americans conservatives and liberals alike to think about this differently. This is a tool for changing America, identity politics. And, and it is, he quoted all the right people, uh, Schlesinger, they, they, these are all liberals and conservatives who love America. And many liberals agree with conservatives that we need to walk away from these categories and, 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 and we need to, to get the government out of creating the categories, get the government out of giving people uh, a, a, a rewards for adhering to the categories in terms of racial preferences. This leads to nowhere good, and it, it will really be the end of us if we continue it. I don't. I think that we can turn back, though. I remain optimistic. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Hansen. I would say a couple of things, maybe three. All of us have to stop blaming the past for our unhappiness in the future. We we can make our own future. It's up to us. It's our responsibility. This idea that we're going to go back 50, 60, 100, 200 years and talk about pre-modern people whose basic worry was getting up one more day and living under primitive conditions of health and food and say, you know what, they weren't utopian like that. That's a very dangerous idea to wipe out your cultural past. And the second is stop putting these utopian burdens on us. We do not have to be perfect to be good. All we have to be is far better than the alternative. 
And we all, when we look about the world today and we travel and we see all the immigrants who are begging to come in here, it's pretty clear that other people other than ourselves feel that the United States is better than the alternative. And that should be reassuring to us. And finally, I, I think it, just to reiterate what Mike said as well, we are we got to get back to this idea that we are people and we have a common citizenship when i go over to europe and i'm sitting in a cafe and i see an italian and i see a german and i see uh, a belgium and i happen to see an african-american or hispanic american i feel more affinity with them than i do with europeans that happen to look more like me because we've created a bond of americanism in fact i've interrupted uh, Europeans that were arguing with people who were Hispanic in Italy, I'm saying, what are you, what are you doing? So I think we got to get this idea that we have more in common uh, in a very dangerous world because there are people with a lot of resources in China and in Russia and other places in Iran that don't like us. And what they are witnessing today is only delight uh, to their agendas. So we've got to We've got to get a little bit more realistic, a little bit more humble, and a little bit more reverent for the people who gave us of what we have and enjoy today. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Hansen, thank you so much for, for being a part of this so important discussion. And to you, Mike Gonzalez, thank you for, for participating and happy anniversary to you and your wife, 20 years. We want to thank each and every one of you for participating in this webinar today want to remind you that Heritage has put out a 14-step action plan for stopping targeted violence in America's cities. And we also um, are very excited to announce that we have a citizen's guide to fight for America. And so as you are looking to celebrate Constitution Day tomorrow, we hope you'll look at that citizen's guide and, and find some action steps um, that will help all of us during this, these turbulent days as we get to the other side. Again, Dr. Hansen, Mike Gonzalez, thank you. And you can fill out a survey. We wanna hear from you, hear your thoughts on a few questions uh, so we can better uh, provide content and information that you're interested in. And in 48 hours, you will be able to log on and be able to watch this video again. Thank you so much and have a wonderful afternoon.